Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, raise up your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We are going through this passage in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, in which Jesus dictates letters to seven different churches. And these letters to the seven different churches speak on many different levels. It speaks, of course, on the level of it being written to the seven churches that existed in those days. But it also exists on the level of speaking to different ages of the history of the church. And we'll speak to that in a few moments, or in a, in a few evenings, rather. And then it also speaks very much to our lives, because each letter concludes with the phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's what the Lord wants to do, is speak to our hearts here tonight. Tonight we're going to consider two of these letters, one to the angel of the church at Thyatira, and the other to the angel of the church at Sardis. So let's consider, first of all, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent." Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and those who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden." But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces. As I has also received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are two things that interest us right away through this reading of the letter to the church at Thyatira. The first is, is that this is the letter that comes in the middle of all of them. You have three before this and three after this. The other thing that strikes us is that this is the longest of any of the letters written to any of the churches, which is all the more interesting because Thyatira, in many ways, was the smallest and the least important city among the seven mentioned. In history, we have no record that the Christians of Thyatira suffered any significant political or religious persecution. We know from the writings of ancient historians and commentators that Thyatira was an unimportant city. But if it had any notoriety, both in ancient history and with the archaeologist Spade has dug up, it was a city of business and trade. Matter of fact, it had many active trade guilds. Now let me explain to you what a trade guild is. It's something like a labor union for skilled craftsmen. 
In other words, let's say you had a number of gold uh, smiths within the town of Thyatira. Well, those goldsmiths would band together and perform a professional association. It would be the Thyatiran Professional Association of Goldsmiths. And they would gather together and they would help each other with their businesses and help keep high standards for goldsmiths. And as well, they would make sure that nobody did business as a goldsmith in that town except that they were part of their professional association. And so it's sort of a licensing and professional association, whether it be a metal worker, a goldsmith, a painter, an idol worker, an idol maker, I should say, any number of professions would have these trade guilds. Membership in a trade guild was absolutely essential for your economic livelihood if you were of one of these professions. But the other aspect of these trade guilds was that each one of them had what they called their patron god. The goldsmiths might have as their patron god the Roman god Mars, the god of war. Another one might have the god uh, Zeus or Jupiter. Another one might have the god Apollo or, or one of the female goddesses in the Roman and Greek pantheon of gods. And their association meetings would usually be held at the temple of that god or goddess. And it would always be accompanied by an elaborate sacrificial meal, where an animal would be sacrificed unto that god, and then the uh, meat of that animal would be eaten by the participants of the banquet, the members of the trade guild. And then oftentimes, because so many of these ancient Greek and Roman gods were sexually immoral in their own character, these gods would be worshipped, so to speak, by the practice of sexual immorality, and official temple prostitutes would be uh, about the room, and men would engage in illicit sexual relations with them. And so uh, that was a very notable thing about this city. We know this from the inscriptions that have been found in the city of Thyatira and the immediate areas around that, that Thyatira possessed more trade guilds than any other town of its size in Asia. In fact, we know something about the business and the trade of Thyatira from the very Bible itself, from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, mention a certain woman named Lydia, who was converted by the preaching of Paul. Lydia was a seller of purple. When it says that, it means purple cloth. Now, purple cloth was the most prestigious and, and uh, glorious kind of covering or clothing that a person could wear in the ancient world. And that was for one reason, it was expensive. The dyes used to make purple cloth were very rare, very hard to process, and therefore very expensive. So if somebody was wearing purple, you knew that they were very wealthy. You knew that they were royalty, probably. It was something of a great, great amount of prestige. Well, Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple, it says. And so we know something of the trade and the commerce of that city and the dynamic of the trade guilds that existed there. So look at how Jesus introduces himself to the city of Thyatira. That's Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now back in Revelation chapter 1, John had a vision, had a, a view of the glory and the radiance of Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory. And as Jesus introduces himself to each one of these seven churches, he draws on elements that John mentioned in that Revelation chapter 1 vision, and he uses each one of those descriptions to emphasize something about his character. In other words, if you were to uh, introduce somebody as the man with very kind eyes, well, that would say something about him, wouldn't it? 
of course, it says something else if you introduce yourself, as it says here in verse 18. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. Those are not kind eyes, are they? Those are piercing eyes. Those are eyes filled with piercing, perceptive judgment. Jesus chose this description of himself from the presentation in Revelation chapter 1 to emphasize the idea that his eyes look with a penetrating judgment. Of course, even before that, he spoke of himself as the Son of God. This describes himself with a title that emphasizes his deity. You know, in ancient Hebrew thought, to be the son of something meant that you had the nature of that thing. The son of the sorceress had the nature of the sorceress. The sons of thunder had a nature like thunder. And so, therefore, the Son of God has a divine nature. So Jesus is the Son of God. It emphasizes his deity. He has eyes like a flame of fire. And then if you notice in verse 18 as well, it says that his feet were like fine brass. Two things that are significant about brass as a picture to us biblically. First of all, brass was the hardest metal known in the ancient world, the most durable. If Jesus was speaking to us in today's sort of terminology with today's technology, he might say uh, the Jesus with the titanium feet. And the idea would be you couldn't push him around, you couldn't move him. He stood firm, just like a rock, and, and you weren't going to push this one around. The other idea of brass is that brass is a pure and highly refined metal. It has a purity to it. And so this figure of Jesus having feet like fine brass emphasizes his purity and his steadfastness. These aren't necessarily warm terms that Jesus introduces himself to the church at Thyatira. So look at what he says next here, verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, if we stop right there, it's a pretty good church, don't you think? I know your works. Thyatira was the least significant city among the seven cities that Jesus addressed, yet they were not hidden to Jesus. Like each one of the churches, Jesus says to the church of Thyatira, I know your works. You know, you are not so insignificant that Jesus doesn't know your works. You might be the most humble, smallest, most insignificant believer among us here tonight, if anybody is given to measure such things. Yet Jesus still knows your works, doesn't he? He still cares about them. You're not insignificant to Jesus. And what does he know about the works of the church at Thyatira? Take a look there. Verse 19, love, service, faith, patience. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't you love it if the Lord would say that to you tonight? Here you are, I know what you've been doing. You have love, you have service, you have faith, you have patience. And if that's not enough, look at what he says at the end of verse 19. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. This is a tremendous compliment to the church at Thyatira. Not only do they have these works, but they have them in increasing measure. You have more love at the end than you had at the beginning. You have more service, more faith, more patience at the end than you had to begin with. Wouldn't that be said of all Christians? It would be a glorious thing. Said of how many of us could it be said that, that Jesus says, I know your love and you used to have more of it before. I know your works and it's not so much in you now, now is it? Used to be more. No, not of the church of Thyatira. The last is more than the first, and it's a beautiful thing. Then we look down to verse 20, and it begins with an ominous word, doesn't it? 
nevertheless. Someday I'll preach a sermon on the great neverthelesses of the Bible. Because it's almost always a bad word. Usually what it means is, well, this is always what it means, but usually it means it in a bad context. Nevertheless means, despite all of that. Now when somebody lists all of your good qualities and then says, despite all of that, you're in a bad place. What you want them to do is to list all your bad qualities and then say, despite all that. Here, let me tell you something. No, it's just the opposite here. Oh, I know there's good and there's plenty of it, but let's wipe all of the good out of the way. There's something I have to talk to you about. And what is it here in verses 20 and 21? He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Problem with the church at Thyatira was there was a woman there named Jezebel, and she was the center of the corruption at that church. Now, Jezebel may not have been her literal name at all. You see, it may have been a title that clearly represented this self-styled prophetess within the church. And she's after the pattern of Jezebel in the Old Testament, one of the most infamous women of the Bible, this woman Jezebel. Now, as I say, it may not have been her name at all, and probably people didn't go around calling her Jezebel. But the name would have power. The name would mean something in the minds of somebody who knew the Bible, who knew the story of Jezebel from the Old Testament. It would be like looking at a person today and saying, You, Judas, that has power, doesn't it? Even if nobody calls them Judas, even if their name isn't Judas, when you call them Judas, you mean something by that, don't you? And in the same way, calling her Jezebel, it has a powerful association. I think there's something very interesting here. It's that in some ancient Greek manuscripts, the the, the phrase, that woman Jezebel, is actually put in, in some ancient Greek manuscripts, your woman Jezebel. And since the word woman and the word wife are the same, some people translate this phrase, your wife Jezebel. And some, based on this, like some great Greek scholars, have thought that Jezebel was the the pastor's wife here. Or that Jesus meant that Jezebel was the pastor's woman in a symbolic sense. Whatever the case, look at what the problem is with her in this section here. Verse 19, excuse me, verse 20. I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, notice it says, who calls herself a prophetess. Jesus is not trying to say that she actually is a prophetess, just that she only claimed to be one. Yet it seems there that the Christians at the church at Thyatira received her as a prophetess, and that's why Jesus gives this warning. Jesus said this would happen. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, he said, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Those words were first spoken by Jesus with a view to the end times. But there's always been those through the history of the church who call themselves prophets and are not. And what did she do with her position of being a prophetess or being a teacher or being a person of influence in the church? Look at it there, verse 20. She beguiles my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Here, Jesus describes the specific sin of this woman, Jezebel. Mainly, she was an immoral and ungodly influence on others. 
And she led others into sin. Jezebel led others into immorality and idolatry. Now, almost certainly, knowing the historical strength of the trade guilds within Thyatira, it probably happened that the sexual immorality and the eating of things sacrificed to idols was connected with those mandatory social occasions of the guilds. Perhaps a Christian was invited to the monthly meetings of the Goldsmiths Guild, and the meeting was held at the temple of, let's say, Apollo. And Jezebel would allow or encourage the man to go, perhaps even using a prophetic voice. Thus says the Lord, go to the temple of Apollo with your goldsmith's guilds. You know, that sort of thing. And when the man went, he would fall into immorality and idolatry. Let's remember that the draw to the guilds and their meetings was powerful. If you were a merchant, if you were a trader, unless you were part of that guild, you couldn't make it financially. You'd be shut out of business in that town. Nevertheless, Christians were expected to stand in the face of this kind of pressure. You know, one ancient Christian named Tertullian wrote about Christians who made their living in the trades connected with pagan idolatry. For example, a a painter might get a job or get a contract painting a pagan temple. Or a sculptor might get a job and say, well, make us this this idol of of Zeus. Or, or, you know, something connected with all those. Goldsmiths might say, well, why don't you put gold gilding around this idol for us? And just as it was then, as it is now, Christians wanted to justify such things. Justify their furtherance and their their practice of idolatry here. And they would justify this by saying, well, this is my living and I must live. Saturlian replied, must you live? Which is brilliant, isn't it? Oh, must we? I mean, is life so precious to us that we would deny our Lord and enter into sin and immorality and, and idolatry under some pretended need to live? What we must do is obey God. And apparently Jezebel and her influence in the church was having a terrible influence in this way. And if you want to notice the depths of this terrible influence, look at it here in verse 20. He says, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants. You see, that shows how terrible Jezebel's sin was. She corrupted the servants of Jesus and they belonged to him. Jesus said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's pretty bad when that's better for you. I mean, that's not even talking about cement shoes. That's a millstone. And it's not even around your feet. It's around your neck. And you're cast into the sea. That's better for you than if you were to offend one of Jesus' little ones. Later in this letter... Jesus will also reveal a link to the work of Jezebel and her false doctrines. In verse 24, he's going to talk about this doctrine being connected to the depths of Satan, as they say. It seems that this Jezebel led others in the church at Thyatira to discover what they called the depths of Satan. And it probably had to do with some pagan or or non-Christian group that said that they were into the deep things of Satan. That they were into trying to discover certain satanic mysteries. And you could see how that might get twisted in the church church saying well you know to defeat satan we have to become experts in his realm and understand the deep things of satan and sometimes people use similar reasoning in misguided spiritual warfare today and jesus wipes all of that away look at what he wanted to do verse 21 he says i gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent 
That's Jesus' greatest accusation against this Jezebel, that she did not repent. She apparently rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in her heart, that work of calling her to repentance. Don't you see the, the, both the mercy and the judgment of our Lord in those words? You see uh, mercy in it where he says time to repent. Aren't we glad that God gives us time to repent? It's a beautiful gift from God. When God gives us time to repent, might I say we should deal with others the same way. How would you like it if the Lord gave you the same amount of time to repent that you gave other people? Some of you are going to think about the night and you're not going to be able to go to sleep. Because you give other people about five minutes to repent, and God gives you about five years. No, God is merciful. At the same time, these words speak of God's judgment, don't you? Because he says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. This means that God, after giving a time of judgment, will will close it off. God gives time to repent, but it is not an unlimited time. There is a time when God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. This means that when God does give us time to repent, we should take advantage of it. Do you have time to repent tonight before the Lord? Then take advantage of it, my friend. You don't know how much longer he's going to give you that time. What are you presuming upon the mercy of God? You're saying, well, that time will be there tomorrow or next week or a month from now. Maybe not. Take it now. And said, sometimes in space comes grace, but not always. It didn't happen with Jezebel and Thyatira. But I want you to notice here the perhaps the most striking words of verses 20 and 21, where he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman. That was the real sin of this church, wasn't it? Not that there was a Jezebel there. No, there's always been false prophets and prophetesses within the church. There's always been people who have tried to lead Christians astray in one way or another. This is just always how it is within the church. But the real sin of the church at Thyatira was that they allowed Jezebel to to do her work there. You see, on the outside, they were a model church showing works and love and service and faith and patience. Yet there was significant corruption inside the church. The sin of that church was that they allowed this corruption. And might I say it wasn't necessarily a large group following Jezebel. A little leaven can affect the whole lump of dough and a little immorality and idolatry can corrupt an entire church, especially if they influence others the way that this Jezebel did. And so what? What does Jesus want this church at Thyatira to do? Look at it here, verse 22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now I say to you, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have until I come. First thing that God says he's going to do is he's going to bring some chastisement, some judgment upon this Jezebel. He says, I'm going to cast her into a sickbed. Before Jesus tells the Christians in Thyatira what they must do, first he says what he's going to do, right? The Christians in Thyatira weren't doing anything about Jezebel. 
So God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to deal with her. I'm going to chastise her. I'm going to cast her into a sickbed along with those who commit adultery with her. Now, the reference to adultery is important because it speaks both of literal sexual adultery, probably practiced at those temples uh, where they practice such things, but it also refers to spiritual adultery. When these Christians honored other gods, they were unfaithful to the Lord who saved them. And for this reason, the figure of a sickbed is fitting. If they were guilty of adultery, both sexual and spiritual, well, then it's as if the Lord says, you love an unclean bed? Well, here, I'll give you one, and I'm going to cast you into a sickbed. And so what was the sickbed? Well, it could simply be an image of affliction. Or it could be literal sickness that Jesus would allow in the life of this Jezebel and her followers as a form of chastisement. We know from passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, that God can use sickness as a way to chastise us when we are in sin. Now, I don't mean to apply by any means that every Christian who's in sin is being chastised with the Lord. No, not at all. But yet we're being unfaithful to the Scriptures if we're saying that, that sickness is never for that case. The scriptures say that that. Well, 1 Corinthians 11.30, where people were disgracing the Lord's Supper by their ungodly contact, conduct, I should say. In that very instance, the Lord made it clear that, that it was because, because of that, that they were sick. So he says, unless they repent of their deeds. That was the purpose of Jesus' chastisement. He wasn't going to throw into a sick bed just to do it. He did it so that they would repent. They wouldn't listen to Jesus before, so now he needs to speak louder through a sickbed. It gives an example of holiness to the other churches as well. If you notice what he said in those verses, he said that all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. It's going to be an example, right? When, when other churches in the other cities see what happens to this Jezebel, then they'll realize that God's certain and that God knows. He knows what he's going to do in the minds and hearts of men. He, he, will. he will judge and he'll chastise where it's necessary. By the way, just kind of a sidelight little note. You know what it is literally in the Greek where it says minds and hearts? Literally in the Greek, it's hearts and kidneys. God sees your heart and he sees your kidneys. You see, in the mind of the ancient Jews, the heart was the place of intellect. That's unusual, isn't it? I mean, we put the place of intellect in the brain. But for the ancient Hebrews, the heart was the place of intellect and the kidneys were the place of emotion. It sounds strange to us, but I heard there's African tribes who, who put the place of affection in the liver. They say, I love you with all my liver. <laughs> well, whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's all just figurative speaking, isn't it? But you get the picture of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I know your every thought. I know your every feeling. And I search the mind. I search the emotions. And so now Jesus says to those Christians who who have not done those things. Look at what he says, verse 25, because there was a remnant who had not committed those sins with Jezebel, who were not approving of it. He says, what I want you to do, verse 25, hold fast what you have until I come. You see, there were many faithful, uncompromising Christians in Thyatira. To them, Jesus simply says, hold fast. They must not stop doing what is good. They must not become distracted or discouraged from what Jesus wants them to be and to do. Jesus also tells them how long to stand fast. How long are we to hold fast? It's in verse 25. Till I come. That's how fast. Friends, you're to hang in there and stand strong for Jesus until he comes. That's when the battle's over. 
That's when you get the permission to stand down as a soldier. When he comes. So it's either when you go to him or he comes to you. Friends, when he comes, that's when the battle's over. Not before. Verses 26 and 28 has a promise of reward. He says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as also I have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. You see, he who overcomes and he who keeps my works until the end, even when there's the immoral and idolatrous influence of a Jezebel, Christians can overcome and Christians can keep Jesus' works until the end. You know, we shouldn't become overly discouraged at the immorality and the idolatry among us, even around Christians. You meet Christians like that, don't you? All the time, you know, they're always just complaining and grieved and broken and talking about all the immorality, all the idolatry around them. And listen, if you want to start talking about it among Christians and what a low state it is, spiritual men Christians, you could go on and on about it, couldn't you? There's no lack of ammunition if you want to go on and on about that. What does Jesus say? You can still overcome. You can still keep his works to the end. Well, it doesn't matter if the whole church is immoral. It doesn't matter if the whole church is idolatrous. Jesus still looks to you tonight and he says, I want you to overcome. I want you to keep my works until the end. And maybe one says, well, who can do it? Lord, look at everybody else is falling away. And Jesus says, you can do it. You keep your eyes on me. I'll keep you. I'll preserve you. Your salvation doesn't depend upon them. It depends upon me. God's work will still go on through his overcomers. And I praise God that there are always his overcomers. I think, frankly, we just sometimes get too discouraged in the Christian life, looking around at the difficulty and the immorality and the idolatry we see among Christians. So what? God's work's going on. People want to peel off to the side, to the left or the right? That's up to them. We pray for them. We reach out to them. But we're not going to let it distract us. We're not going to let it break the hope within us that we can be overcomers before the Lord. And that promise that Jesus gives to them, look at it there. It's in verse 26 and 27 where he says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Jesus promising here that his people will reign with him. It's a special promise to those who overcome the threat of immorality and idolatry. To them, Jesus offers a share in his own kingdom. He talks about his rule in that kingdom, where he's going to rule with a rod of iron. The quotation he makes from Psalm 2 there is a a quotation that speaks of the authority of the Messiah. And that authority will be, well, it'll be partnered with his own people. And if you notice there, what happens when, when people disobey the authority of the Messiah during the millennium? Well, he'll pop them like a clay pot with a crowbar. Well, that's what it says there. A rod of iron as the potter's vessels. And then finally, Jesus offers to them the most beautiful gift. Look at there, verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. You know who the morning star is? It's Jesus himself. That's the greatest reward for the overcomer, right? Jesus says, here's your reward, me. And to the overcomer, that's the most precious reward. We're not let down. We're not like the kid whose parents come home from a trip and say, well, is that all you brought me? No. No, it's we get you, Jesus. That's best of all. The letter ends, verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. His friends, this is a letter that applies to everyone. Obviously, it applies to those who are like Jezebel. 
Are you someone like Jezebel? Do you lead other people into sin? Friends, that's something to take very seriously in your life and ask that the Spirit of God would search you carefully if in some way or another you are leading other people into sin. I'm not trying to say that you have a class, you know, once a week where you, you, you point out ways to sin and you encourage people to follow this. This is the five-point step to, to falling into sin. No. But maybe by your example, maybe by your influence, maybe by some area of ungodliness, maybe you're leading people into sin. Then, friends, you need to take it seriously. And this letter applies to those who are like Jezebel and who lead others into sin. It also applies to those who follow the teaching of a Jezebel and follow others into sin. Maybe you don't lead others into sin, but maybe you follow them into sin. Don't excuse it. You know what's right and wrong before God. Be a man or a woman of God and stand up on your own two feet and say, well, it doesn't matter if this person that I have loved and respected, if they're in sin, I'm not going to follow them in it. I'm going to make a stand for the righteousness that God wants to work into my life. This letter applies to those who are like Jezebel. It applies to those who, are, who would follow someone like Jezebel. But it also applies to those who would permit a Jezebel to work her wickedness. Maybe you're off on the sidelines and someone's in sin, they're in immorality, and it's just simply time to tell them to stop. Finally, it applies to the faithful, the faithful who must hold fast. Yes, there's something in this letter for everyone who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we're going to consider one more letter to the churches tonight. That's in Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, the letter to the church at Sardis. Let's read the whole letter and then take a look at it piece by piece. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At the time Jesus spoke these words to John, the ancient city of Sardis was still a great city. It was on its way of declining, yet it was a wealthy city. It was situated at the junction of several important roads and trade routes, and the connection between Sardis and money, easy money, was well known in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, you may be interested to know that the first coinage that was ever minted in that whole region was minted in Sardis in the name of a day, uh, in the day of a, man, of a famous king named Cressus. These roughly formed coins were the very beginning of money in the modern sense of the word. Money that represented money somewhere else instead of just its value as a piece of gold or a piece of silver in itself. Sardis was the place where modern money was born. Now, Sardis was also a city well-known for its softness and luxury. It had a well-deserved reputation for apathy and immorality. You see, in Sardis, there was a large, stately temple to the mother goddess known as Sybil. 
from the ruins of that temple, you can see that the main columns of that temple, think about this, the columns of the temple were 60 feet high and more than six feet in diameter. Huge columns, a huge temple. And this mother goddess was honored, worshipped, so to speak, with all kinds of sexual immorality and impurity. Now, the combination of easy money and a loose moral environment made the people of Sardis notoriously soft. They were pleasure-loving. William Barclay says in his commentary that the great characteristic of Sardis was that its people, even on pagan lips, that Sardis was a name of contempt. Its people were notoriously loose-living, notoriously pleasure- and luxury-loving. Sardis was a city of decadence. This softness, this lack of discipline and dedication was the doom of Sardis on several different occasions. The Greek historian Herodotus says that some 200 years before the days of uh, Jesus, actually almost 500 years, King Cyrus came to Sardis and found the position of the city ideally situated for defense. There seemed to be no way to, to climb the steep cliff walls. It was an ideally defended city by natural position. It was on the top of a plateau with steep cliffs running up to it. And then you had the city walls beyond that. And so you looked up at the city of Sardis and said, there's no way. How can anybody come in and conquer? The, the one entrance in the city is easily defended. And apart from that, you have all these steep walls. You can't conquer the city of Sardis. And so King Cyrus of the Persians, he offered a very rich reward to any one of his soldiers who could figure out the problem. And one of his soldiers was watching very carefully the sentinels that were guarding the city of Sardis, those defenders. And he saw one of those defending soldiers drop his helmet down off the city walls and down the steep embankment that surrounded the city. Well, as this soldier from King Cyrus' army watched this defending soldier, he scampered down from the city walls, and then he went down a hidden trail to pick up his helmet, and he walked back up. The observing soldier watched the way carefully, and he marked where that trail was, and that night he led a detachment of soldiers up that embankment, up to the city walls, and when they got there, you know what they found? The walls were undefended. You see, the idea in the city of Sardis was, we have such great natural protection. Why bother staying up all night to guard the walls? We're protected good enough. But they weren't. You see, the soldiers of Sardis were so confident in the natural defenses of the city that they felt no need to keep a diligent watch. So their city was easily conquered. And curiously, the same almost identical thing happened 200 years later when Antiochus attacked and conquered the overconfident city that did not set a watch. So Jesus speaks to this church. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write... These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. See, Jesus describes himself and he uses terms that emphasize his character as the master of every spiritual power and authority. You see, he repeats the number seven. Seven spirits of God, seven stars, and the stars represent the churches, of course, as we saw in Revelation chapter 1. Seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit of God, and he possesses the fullness of the church. As Jesus possesses these things, having the seven spirits of God, having these churches, he guards them, he, he holds them, he has the authority over them. And what does he know about the Christians in Sardis? Look at it there, verse 1, 
I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. Well, I know your works. Jesus knows. And what does he know about them? That they have a name, that you are alive. Jesus knew that the church at Sardis had a name, that is a reputation. They had a reputation of life and vitality. If you looked at the church of Sardis, you'd see signs of life and and activity. And the church of Sardis, like the city of Sardis, everything seemed alive, everything seemed good. A good reputation is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Churches have reputations. Just yesterday we got back from a brief one-day trip visiting a missionary of ours, Karen Holdcraft, down in Ensenada. Beautiful time. The Lord's doing so many wonderful things. And and she said something that I thought was just very cheering to me. Wonderful thing to hear. Beautiful thing speaking about the reputation of our church because just from the way that the work is that she's in, in Ensenada is situated, a lot of missionaries come through there visiting and checking out the work and going here and going there. It's just sort of a hub of activity. And so she gets to meet a lot of missionaries. And she was speaking to some people who they weren't Calvary Chapel missionaries, but they knew of some Calvary Chapel people. But they had missionaries in Europe, and they knew of when well, they had heard of our, of our church just from things that we had done in Europe, and they knew people who we had supported or knew this or knew that, and so they had just known of that. And you know what they said about Calvary Chapel of Simi Valley? They said, oh, Calvary Chapel of Simi Valley, that's a church that loves missionaries, they said. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. People we don't even know, talking about a reputation that our church has. That's a, that's a good thing. That speaks highly of our people, of that, they, that they love missionaries, and that they could be known somewhere by people we don't even know on the other side of the world. Now, the problem with that is that a reputation is a good thing, but it's really only a good thing if it's backed up with a reality. Reputation without reality can get you into more trouble than you ever know. So this is what Jesus says. Look at it here, verse 1. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. Now look at his verdict at the end of verse 1. But you are dead. You see, despite the reputation of life, Jesus saw them for what they really were. But you are dead shows that a good reputation is no guarantee of true spiritual character. Despite their good appearance, Jesus saw them for what they really were. Dead. Dead indicates no struggle, no fight, no persecution. It wasn't that the church at Sardis was losing the battle. A dead body has lost the battle and the fight seems over. You know, in this letter, Jesus doesn't encourage the Christians in Sardis to stand strong against persecution. He doesn't tell them to stand strong against false doctrine, probably because there simply weren't those dangers in Sardis. Why bother? Satan has that church in his hip pocket. What does he need to bring persecution or false doctrine along for? Being dead, the church in Sardis presented no significant threat to Satan's domain. Friends, I'll just lay it on the line. The church in Sardis wasn't worth attacking. So it was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. It wasn't scandalous wickedness that doomed the church at Sardis. It was a decent death. They knew the form of godliness, but without the power of it. So they had peace. Now there's two kinds of peace that you can have. You can have the peace of victory, right? Or you can have the peace of death. 
And this was the peace of death. And so what does Jesus say to the church at Sardis? Look at it there, beginning at verse 2. He says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I'll come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The first thing Jesus tells the people in the city of Sardis to do is something that would be extremely relevant to them, knowing the history of their city. He says in verse 2, Be watchful. You need to examine and protect and strengthen what you have. He says, You have things that remain. The spiritual condition of the church of Sardis was bad, but it wasn't hopeless. There were things that remained that could be strengthened. Jesus hadn't given up on them. It was late. He says they are things that are ready to die, but it wasn't too late. Let's remember that in its history, the city of Sardis was easily conquered twice before. It wasn't that the attacking armies overwhelmed Sardis, but because of overconfidence, it made them stop being watchful. The spiritual state of the church at Sardis was a reflection of the city's historical character. And Jesus says, I have not found your works perfect before God. Their works, even though they were present, they didn't measure up to God's standard. Friends, the presence of works isn't enough. Because God requires a particular intent and purpose in all of our works. You see, what we do for the Lord, it isn't enough just to do it. It needs to be done with the right kind of heart, with the right kind of presence before Him. That's what makes our works perfect before Him. And so what is His prescription to them? Look at it there in verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Remember. Remember how you first received and heard the word of God. And then hold fast to those things. He's shouting to them in verse 3, Get back to the word of God. That's why there's no life. Because you've departed from the word of God. Oh, friends, a, a church can work. A church can serve. A church can be active. But you separate that church from the word of God, and it will die. Oh, I didn't say they'd be inactive, but I said they'd die. Because you know how it is. The word of God brings us life. The word of God is life to us. And they needed to restore the gospel and apostolic doctrine to its proper place of authority over their lives. Look at what Jesus says to them. He says, therefore, if you will not watch, I'll come upon you as a thief. Jesus warns of the great danger in failing to watch. If they ignore his command to be watchful, then Jesus will come upon them as a thief at a time completely unexpected by them. But Jesus would come upon them and they needed to be watchful. Watchful every time. Winston Churchill said to the nation of Britain in the early days of World War II, he said, I must drop one word of caution for next to cowardice and treachery Overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness is the worst of wartime crimes. And friends, we're at war. Overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness is one of the worst crimes we can commit as Christians. Now, if you look at it, there's still an encouraging word in verse 4. It says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. You see, even among the dead Christians in Sardis, there is a faithful remnant, but there were only a few names. I think it's interesting. As you look at the letters to the church at Pergamos and the church at Thyatira, there were a few bad among the good. What is it here in Thyatira? Or excuse me, in Sardis? There's a few good among the bad. 
That's how it is in Sardis. A few good among those bad, and those good have not defiled their garments, as it says there. You see, a sin is expressed under the notion of nakedness, so holiness is expressed under the notion of a garment, and these were not defiled. Jesus has a precious promise to these in verse 4. He says, and they shall walk with me in white. Jesus promises that these pure ones will walk with him. That's a picture of close fellowship. It's a picture probably drawn from the figure of Enoch, who walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You know, the garments that God gives us are always white. Sardis was a church that was dead because of sinful compromise. They needed to receive and walk in the pure white garment that Jesus gives. White was also the color of triumph to the Romans. And so the white garment speaks of the believer's ultimate triumph in Jesus. And so he looks and he says, walk with me. It's the greatest reward that Jesus can give his followers. The Christians in Sardis who forsake the sinful compromise of their city, they'll be rewarded with a closer, more intimate walk with Jesus. You see, that's ultimately the best motivator for rejecting sin, isn't it? A closer walk with Jesus. And so Jesus says, here, come, receive it. Verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments... And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And Jesus over identifies, I should say, these overcomers with those few names who have not defiled the garments. These overcomers will wear white garments received from Jesus. You see, the, the difference between the dead majority with imperfect works, though they had a good reputation, right? The difference between them and the few names who really pleased God was purity and the closeness with Jesus that's related to purity. The deadness and the spiritual facade that most of the Christians in Sardis uh, related to their impure lives and the embrace of the impurity of this world of sin around them. I don't know if you could say that the deadness came before the impurity or the impurity came before the deadness. I don't know, but they're surely related. Jesus said, here, I'll give you a new garment, clothed in white garments. That'll be your reward, and you will not be blotted out from the, name, from the book of life. Now, by this, the overcomers are assured of their heavenly citizenship. In the ancient world, death or a criminal conviction could blot out the name of an ancient citizen from the city's book of the living, which was the city's register. And so they said, well, look, if you're blotted out, then you're dead. He said, you won't be spiritually dead. The risen Christ is saying, if you want to remain on the role of the citizens of God, then keep your faith flamingly alive. Then you'll stay on that role. Now look at that phrase again there, where it says in verse 5, And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, does this mean that someone can lose their salvation? That someone is saved one day, there's their name in the book of life, And the next day it's out, erased out, blotted out, white out, over it, whatever you want to say. And then maybe the next day it's written in again, blotted out, I don't know. Well, first of all, I think we need to see the context here. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. The the context there is assurance. Who is this spoken to? It's spoken to the overcomer. Look at it there. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That's a word spoken to the overcomers, isn't it? That's Jesus' word to them. 
You will not be blotted out of the book of life. And then he goes on to say, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What a beautiful promise. And so we see here that the emphasis there is given on assurance. We shouldn't think that this indicates us that names are constantly being written and rewritten in the book of life. The focus here is on assurance, not that Jesus sits in heaven with a busy eraser. Now, at the same time, let me say this. We should consider very carefully what the Word of God has to say about the book of life. Just open up your concordance and look it up. The book of life. The Bible tells us that there is a book of life and that it will be opened and referenced on the day of judgment. This means that the book of life is real and it will be read. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. That's heavy, isn't it? Secondly, the Bible tells us that there is a book of life, and it determines whether or not we go to heaven or to hell. This means that the book of life is important. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's serious, friends. If you're in the book of life, you're saved. If you're out of it, you're going into the lake of fire. What a serious word this was. To be blotted out of the book of life, that's a heavy thing. Thirdly, there is a book of life And knowing our names are written there should bring us great joy. Jesus said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Isn't that great? That's what we should rejoice in. Fourthly, there is a book of life, and there are five different references in the Bible to people having their names blotted out of the book of life. This should mean that the idea of being blotted out of the book of life should be taken seriously. Now, perhaps it's only a symbol. Perhaps in the fact of the matter, that person's name was never there to begin with. And if that's even the case, then the Lord still wants us to take it seriously because there are some who by every human appearance are saved yet they will not be in heaven. Friends, Moses said to the Lord, this is Exodus 32, 32, yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And then in Exodus 32, 33, the Lord says, and the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. In Psalm 69, verse 28, David prayed, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Then here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, we have Jesus saying that he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 19, It says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Friends, that's serious. Five times in the Bible, God talks about people having their name removed in some way from the book of life. 
Something serious to consider. You know, a good example of how seriously we should take this warning is found in the life of a man named Charles Templeton. A generation or two ago, he was deeply involved in the foundations of organizations like Youth for Christ and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Chuck Smith himself said how dynamic and powerful a minister this man Charles Templeton was and how Chuck would go anywhere to listen to this guy. Many, many people, hundreds if not thousands, received Jesus at his meetings and he was an associate with Billy Graham in his early years. But not too long ago, this man Charles Templeton wrote a book. And in that book, he totally denounces his belief in Jesus Christ. He denounces even his belief in God, and he says that he's an atheist. And in this book that he wrote, Charles Templeton totally renounces his earlier confessions of faith. And throughout the book, his whole effort in the book is to rescue people that he once brought to Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, this man, in his present apostate state, is not going to heaven. Now, might I say, you can debate all day long whether or not he was never saved or if he was saved and lost it. But the bottom line is this. By all human appearance, anybody would have said that that man was saved. But maybe he wasn't. God alone knows, right? And maybe he never really was saved. Maybe it was just a false conversion. That's possible. What I'm saying is, nobody could see that. Only God could. Friends, and yet that man is on his way to hell right now. See, here is where it sobers us up. At the end of the day, there's only two conclusions, really. At one time, by all human appearances, a person can be saved. But secondly... We have to take the warnings of the Bible to keep walking, to keep trusting, and to keep preserving in the faith seriously enough. I mean, even those who would say that, that what, well, a person could never lose their salvation, and a man like Charles Templeton, it's just evidence that he was never saved, they would still say, this man needs to heed the warnings to keep walking, and if he doesn't keep walking, well, then it's evidence that he never was. Friends, in my mind, in, in large, practical down to earth, let's get down to where the rubber meets the road. Who really cares if the guy was ever saved or if he lost his salvation? In some sense, you're quibbling about words. You know what really matters? Abiding with Jesus day by day. Not being of the church of Sardis, where you're going off into this direction or that direction. Would anybody, would anybody go up to this man, Charles Templeton, and put their arm around him and say, don't worry about it, brother, you're saved. You used to preach, you used to confess Christ, it doesn't matter. You're saved. Nobody would do that. Nobody of any kind of theological persuasion. They'd grieve for the man who's departed from these moorings of the faith. Friends, in the genealogies of the Bible, there's two books mentioned. Genesis 5.1 mentions the book of the generation of Adam, and Matthew 1.1 mentions the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Being born of Adam does not guarantee that our name is written in the book of life, but being born again, being born of Jesus Christ, that's what gives us that assurance. Tonight you can know that your name is written in the book of life, and you can have such a powerful change in your life, something worked from the inside out that you know it's there. That you live every day knowing that you're walking in that assurance. 
Then he says, if you notice here at the end of verse 5, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Friends, that's mind-blowing. Look, it's just common sense that we would confess the name of Jesus, right? I mean, if I could not put too fine a point on it, you're just stupid not to. (laughs) Who doesn't want to associate themselves with Jesus? Really? I mean, this is Jesus. I mean, even New Age people, even people of all different religious persuasions, everybody wants to associate themselves with Jesus. It's no mystery that we'd confess him, but that he would confess us. That's... That's just strange. It's a strange love that he loves us with, isn't it? A love beyond explanation. Verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We must all hear what the Holy Spirit says to the church at Sardis. It's easy to drift in sleepy apathy towards spiritual death, especially when you have a good reputation. Maybe tonight people look at you and say, well, he's a mature Christian. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, but friends, don't live on that reputation. Live in an abiding, real, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe tonight you're, you're a member of the church of Sardis. Maybe tonight you're dead. Even though your reputation says you're not, but that's what it is. Your life with God is dead. And I tell you that Jesus is an expert in raising the dead. You just come to him tonight and he'll, he'll fix it. See, the church at Sardis teaches us, if anything, and this is what the Spirit says to the churches, this is what we need to give our ear to hear, that we must beware of our success. The city was wealthy and knew, it easy, and knew easy living, but it made them soft, it made them spoiled. Sardis also teaches us that we must be strongest at our, excuse me, we must be watchful at our strongest points. Sardis thought it was unconquerable, and so it was conquered. And where we would say in our lives, well, I would never do that. Maybe that's the point where you need to make the most diligent guard. Because your walk matters. A great military man from Great Britain, the British Field Marshal Montgomery, he used to say, one man can lose me a battle. Friends, one corrupt or disobedient Christian can lose a battle for the entire church. They they can lose a battle through their own point of failure. They can lose a battle because they lead others into the same sin. Or they can lose a battle because they foster a spirit of accommodation in the other members of that church. One man, one woman can lose a battle. I'll just say, Lord, by your grace, by your power in me, I'm not going to be that man. I'm not going to be that woman. Bring me your life. Let me walk every day in it. Let's pray and commit this all to the Lord. Father.